Welcome to the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon. I am your host, Shane Bacon, and it is Open Championship Week in Northern Ireland. So who better to have on than Eamon Lynch, the great writer, journalist, now broadcaster for Golf Week and Golf Channel, jumps on from Royal Portrush to chat a little bit about the week, what it means for the area, uh, the expectations for Rory McIlroy. We talk a little Tiger Woods and into Brooks Kepka, and uh, it was an enjoyable chat. And then after that, a little bonus guest, a fella by the name of Max Homa. Let me tell you, I think this guy's got a future. Max jumped on to chat a little bit about caddying for me last week at U.S. Amateur Qualifying. He was out there in the heat in Phoenix, Arizona, and he was great, and we had a lot of fun. It was a, it was a great chat, so hopefully you enjoy that. Of course, this week's podcast and all Clubhouse podcasts are brought to you by Titleist. And this week, I just wanted to talk to you about the Vokey-designed SM7 wedges. First things first, your wedges probably need to be replaced. I'm just telling you that right now. Wedges are the clubs people always forget to replace, and they also forget to get fit for them. They just go and buy them off the rack. That looks like a good wedge. Let's go. It's the club you hit so much. Besides the putter, think about how many wedges you hit per round, how many chip shots you hit around the green. Why not have something you can trust? Like the Vokey Design SM7 wedges, they're designed by Master Craftsman Bob Vokey to improve your wedge play, and the SM7 innovations provide the best performance and distance control, shot versatility, and maximum spin. Very, very important when you're in trouble, and the best way to experience SM7 wedges is to hit each grind side-by-side side during a wedge fitting. You can find the nearest fitting location at Vokey.com, V-O-K-E-Y.com, or you can use the online wedge selector tool to find the right loft, bounce, and grind for your wedges. It is not your grandfather's wedge game anymore. There are so many options. Bob Vokey, one of the best guys in all of golf, does an unbelievable job with the wedges, with his designs, with his grinds to fit exactly what you need for the area you play in and the type of lie and grass you play off of. So do that. Go check it out at Vokey.com. Trust me, it will help your golf game. It will lower your score. It's important, important, important to change out your wedges every couple of years or else you're going to be hitting and not getting the spin you want and then you're going to be mad that the ball didn't react the way it should have and that's your fault. Because you have old wedges. So blame yourself. Don't blame anybody else. All right, let's get to the guest because it's a, it's a pretty lengthy Clubhouse podcast today. We're going to start with the great, great, and always entertaining Eamon Lynch. And we're joined for the first time in the Clubhouse, one of the best in the business, Eamon Lynch. You can check out his written word at golfweek.com. You can see his face, which is always a pleasure, on Golf Channel. He grew up about an hour <laughs> south of Belfast. Uh, and Eamon, you wrote, I would say, one of the most impactful pieces uh, pre-Open Championship that I've read, one of the best pieces, and we'll send this out uh, on social media when the podcast comes up. But you wrote kind of about everything that's happened since the 1960s in and around Northern Ireland, all the struggles, the troubles is what they called it. You grew up in and around this. So before we get into the golf, for people like myself, who's a dumb American who rarely checks the news outside of your own state... Can you just give people kind of a thought, just just a summarization of what all's gone down there and, and all that that has happened basically since the Open Championship was there in 1951 and what it's like now? Well, of course, if the Open hasn't been at a venue for 68 years, Shane, it's almost incumbent upon us to explain why, especially when the course is, is a top 20 course in the world, the way Royal Port Rush is. And, uh, I mean, it's really hard to give a Cliff Notes version of of Northern Irish history because, you know, I, I've told friends all week that to describe it as it often is, 
casually described as a, as a religious conflict between Catholics and Protestants is really like describing Game of Thrones as a family drama because it doesn't come anywhere close to capturing the nuance and complexity of it because, yes, it's about religion, but it's also about politics and economics and geography and history and culture and class and all of those other things. But it's basically been a 50-year process in Northern Ireland to get to this point since the civil rights movement in the 1960s, uh, which was aimed at getting equal rights, not least voting rights for Catholics in Northern Ireland. It kind of erupted into what was effectively a civil war, which we euphemistically refer to as the Troubles. And that carried on for a quarter of a century. It was in August of 1994 that the IRA ceased, initially ceased its armed campaign against the British government, which faltered a little, but finally held after 1997. And then it's been 21 years since the Good Friday Agreement was signed by all parties, which nominally ended the conflict and established a government within Northern Ireland, which of course has now not sat in two and a half years because they really don't actually agree on anything over here, no matter whether it's a big picture issue or a small issue. So it's very much an imperfect piece, but the the body count has gone down to near zero, which, uh, you know, that's not an insignificant matter for the people who live here by any means. Yeah, I mean, you grew up around it. I mean, you wrote, as I mentioned, the piece you wrote for Golf Week. I mean, you talked about, you know, 100 deaths daily. I mean, you, you know, this is something I think people don't totally grasp at how enormous it was, how 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 scary it was. You touched a little bit on it now. What is it like day-to-day now? I know, you know, open week is open week, and it's going to be, you know, fanfare and flags and people excited as they should be. But outside this week, the other 51 weeks of 2019, what's the feel like in this area for people that live there, that have lived there forever? It's, it's radically different now from what it was, and I should correct it, it was roughly about 100 deaths per year, and which is why it's so outside the perception of what Northern Ireland was like versus the reality, because, you know, the average American listening to this would think, well, you know, that's a, a couple of bad months in Chicago, and it's just simply what it was here was the pervasive threat and existence of the violence. It really metastasized into every aspect of day-to-day life. And the hangover of that is still here. There's a certain sinisterness to hanging around in Northern Ireland. There's a, a wariness among the people. They're, they're so highly attuned to the use of language. I mean, I'll give you an example how in Northern Ireland, if you were raised here, you can ascertain or assume certain beliefs of a stranger based on the language they use. If I were to get in a cab at, at Belfast Airport, getting off a flight, and the cab driver said to me, have you just arrived from the mainland? I would have automatically assumed living here that that cab driver was Protestant because no Catholic would ever have referred to Britain as the mainland. So it, it really is such a, uh, an international little conflict that has never really sort of been washed away. It's very hard to get rid of a hangover of something like that in a society that is still to this day very, very divided to the extent that they obviously don't even have a functional government. But it's a remarkable extent to which day-to-day life could carry on. There were people who managed to live lives as unaffected as possible by the troubles. And there are people even now in in this divided country we live in, the vast majority of people can move through their day-to-day lives untroubled by what goes on. People find normalcy even in extraordinary circumstances. And Northern Irish people have always been very good at that. Well, and, and this kind of leads me into the golf. And it's interesting because we're going to talk golf now, 
but it's going to have a little bit of a political hangover because the favorite this week is Rory McIlroy, and he is a guy that has had to battle a little bit of who you are his entire life. I mean, you think about the Olympics coming in and what flag are you going to play under, and he decides not even to play in the Olympics, and of course he moves stateside, and he's a guy that has talked at times about not loving Lynx golf, it not fitting his game, and of course, you know, he famously shot 61 on this golf course as a 16-year-old. I mean, it's it's really, it kind of it kind of weaves in and out of his life, Royal Portrush does. He's the favorite this week. He's a guy that hasn't played great in major championships the last few years, really outside of that Masters outside of the Masters last year when he was paired with Patrick Reed into that final round. How much pressure is on the shoulders of Rory McIlroy this week to play well, contend, and even get himself in the conversation to possibly win this thing? I think it's enormous. And he does actually, he, he seems much more comfortable on Lynx golf now than he, he used to be, certainly for a kid who grew up playing a lot of it. He hasn't been outside the top five in his last four appearances in this major, and he's been, he's been very spotty, admittedly, in all of the other majors, perhaps outside of the Masters. But there is an enormous degree of pressure on him this week because if you had suggested 20 years ago that this country with a population of one and a half million people would produce three major winners, we kind of would have laughed at you. We thought <laughs> somewhat implausible. If you were to suggest that those three major winners would actually be contending contesting a major in their own country, you would have been uh, sent to the insane asylum. It was just a laughable notion. <laughs> and to actually have that situation where he is actually the the local boy who is the favourite for the tournament, well then you can get a sense of what the scale and weight of expectation he faces this week. And I thought it was interesting that he did not show up to the golf course until late this morning, not long before his, his press conference. And I think he's trying to minimise the amount of time he's hanging around there being asked questions and subject to the scrutiny. And I mean, I was doing a morning drive with Damon Hack on Golf Channel a little while ago and we were out on the range and you could just see a tsunami of people moving up the dunes who were following Rory around the golf course. And so he really is going to be the subject of so much of the attention and expectation that I think it may actually be difficult for him to fully perform given what what he's going to have to deal with on and off the golf course. Yeah, I mean, we we see this at Augusta National every year with Rory to a lesser extent. I mean, he's trying to do something for his career. I mean, he's trying to win the Grand Slam, finally get the green jacket, do that, and join this very, very short list of players that have gotten to that point. This is, I mean, this is that times 100 to me. I mean, just because, as you mentioned, the, the fans are just salivating hoping to get a glimpse of him, hoping to see him play well, hoping to see him, you know, again, do something on land that we never thought we would even see. And now we're in 2019, and one of the best golfers in the world just happens to be from Northern Ireland. I I, I do love the fact that he showed up a little late, and I also wonder, when you think about Rory back in 2014 and 2015, he was the story every single week. The nice thing for Rory is, over the last couple of years, he hasn't had to be the story. You had Jordan Spieth in 15, you know, trying to win at St. Andrews and trying to do things there that we hadn't seen. And, of course, the last year, year and a half, it's all been Tiger Woods and Brooks Kepka going into majors. This has to be the first time that he's felt this amount of pressure from fans and from the media going into a major championship. Uh, probably since Augusta, and I would argue that he may be under more pressure 
this week than he is when he shows up at Augusta because at least he can go to Augusta every year with a chance of getting that green jacket. And who knows when or if they come back to Port Royal since it's been 68 years since the last time. I, I don't imagine it would be that long again. But it would mean a, a great deal to him, I think, to actually win this week. And But given his choice between the claret jug here and a green jacket, I don't believe for a moment that Rory would not choose the green jacket. But that doesn't in any way diminish the kind of pressure he's under showing up here. He, the other guys who are in the field from Northern Ireland, you know, Darren's going to hit the first tee shot tomorrow morning. Darren Clark, he's a ceremonial golfer. He's practically been a ceremonial golfer since he lifted the claret jug eight years ago. GMAC's big victory, I think, was getting himself into the field. And I think GMAC knows that he would have to perform at, at a very, very high level with no margin for error at all to probably put himself really into that mix on Sunday afternoon. Rory's a guy with all of the weapons to, to get there, and he's the only one that is expected to be there. And I think when you add that to the fact that it's a hometown game, then you've got an incredible millstone around his neck this week. And sometimes guys play well in home games. You know, Patrick Reed was a hometown boy at Augusta, but I would argue Rory's a hell of a lot more popular in Northern Ireland than Patrick Reed is at Augusta. Really going out on a limb there. I like that. That is, uh, I'm not sure that one's going to break. That one's pretty sturdy. You, you know, we, we talked a little about Rory and his love for Lynx Golf. Uh, what we've seen him do at major championships over the years is he plays a lot better at golf courses that are a bit more saturated, a, a little softer golf courses. I know Port Rush has had a lot of rain the last few weeks, does it feel a little more like that th- than maybe one of the dried out links golf courses that we see typically in the open rota? It's definitely very green, but the the weather I've been in Ireland now for for two weeks and it's rained once, and the weather is definitely holding up pretty good. Now the forecast for Thursday, uh, for most of the day and for part of Friday, is for rain showers, so it may soften it up a little. But I don't actually think it's the the trick this week where Rory gets an advantage is so much in the saturation level. It was This golf course is really unlike a lot of the other courses they see on the open rota in the sense that the greens are a little more elevated. There's a few, quite a few false fronts out there. So you can't see guys or you won't see them play the traditional run-up shot as often as you would at other length venues. So that hurts guys who either are, are playing from way back or they're in the rough because they're simply not going to get on the greens. You have to be able to put the ball in the fairway because you are going to have to fly the ball onto the green to some of these difficult pin positions. And you could argue Rory McIlroy is the best driver of the golf ball in the world. And, you know, that obviously then puts pressure on a wedge game and putting. But, you know, these greens are going to run a 10 and a half this week. So anybody, even a mediocre putter, can be an aggressive putter on 10 and a half green speeds. So I think the actual nature of the golf course will help Rory more so than it might help some of the shorter hitters who would like to get the ground contours to help them onto the green because that's just not as feasible here as at other places. Well, we're 13 minutes in, and I haven't mentioned, uh, at least I haven't asked you about Tiger Woods, so I think I deserve some sort of like media honor. I, I do want to talk a little bit about Tiger with you. It- it's, I would say it's been a weird year since his win at Augusta National. I mean, you know, you you see him, you know, in, in a in a different mentality throughout that final round, not getting excited, kind of keeping it right even, right level throughout the day. Of course, he makes the putt on 18, and then he goes a little bit crazy and celebrates with the family. But since then, that's almost followed him around. I mean, we didn't see much of Tiger. He's only played one event that's not a major since mid-April. And he's come into this week, and we've had experts and past champions and past players criticize him on his scheduling, what's the feel like on the grounds 
about Tiger this week and his chances to play well considering the lack of tournament golf we've seen basically since his win? Well, he definitely seemed very kind of low energy and sluggish in his press conference today. And frankly, he seemed to have seen that way and play that way since Augusta. And, you know, there's a, a pool of consensus out there that winning at Augusta took a lot out of him. But I, I would think that you could also make the argument that what we have seen since then is closer to Tiger's reality going forward as a major competitor. Because when he shows up here, for instance, he he doesn't have institutional knowledge of this golf course to rely upon. He's never seen it until he got here on Sunday. And at Augusta National, of course, he knows every nook and cranny on that golf course. He could play it blindfolded. And that's just simply not the case here. And he didn't perform, obviously, well at, at Pebble and Beth Page, two courses that he does know. So I would think there has to be very low expectations for Tiger this week. He, he talked about how he didn't feel as though his game was as sharp as he'd like it. But how could it be? I mean, I don't even play golf anymore. And I think I've played more since the Masters than Tiger has. <laughs> You well, you but definitely didn't to start your you definitely didn't to start your Ireland trip. I, I saw you posted you've been to the range five <laughs> times and hadn't even got out and played on a golf course. Like, what are you doing? I'm a broken man, but I blame your colleague Faxon for that. Did he? Is he ruined your game? Is Brad Faxon has has he allowed the demons to creep out of his head into yours? Well, I think I may be the only person in golf who's actually taken more lessons than Brad has, and I'm not saying <laughs> something as you know. It's that is that is a scary, scary record to hold. I'm I'm nervous for you uh, if that is the case. You know, the, the, going back to Tiger for a minute, when you, what's very interesting, and you said it is, is the Masters wins taking a lot out of him. That seems to be kind of the company line from Team Tiger, and uh, and when he won the Tour Championship last year, it what followed was a little of what's followed the Masters win. I mean, he played. Pretty apathetic at the Ryder Cup. He was there kind of in person, but didn't seem totally into it. You know, we, we saw him play Tiger versus Phil in the match, but Tiger didn't definitely didn't have his best stuff there either. And it was like he was he it was like some runner put everything he can into this marathon and just laid down at the finish line and couldn't get back up for a couple hours. That seems to be what we've seen following this Masters win as well. And and I loved your point about this being the new reality for Tiger is what we're seeing since April is probably what's more normal for Tiger. I mean, with all the health issues and with all the surgeries and everything he's gone through, it's probably more normal for him to be a little sluggish than it is for him to be 100% on his A game. And you also have to wonder if he is physically protecting himself, even if there is not an issue pressing right now, that he's simply cautious about creating a situation through wear and tear where another issue may come up. But right now, Tiger's a part-time player. He's playing a schedule now that is equivalent to basically what Jack Nicklaus played when he came on the Champions Tour. He's showing up to the majors and a couple of other events here and there. But by the looks of it, you know, we're not that far away from the FedEx Cup at this point. And Tiger's still in, you know, single digits of of tournament appearances this year. He's just simply not a full-time golfer on the PGA Tour anymore. And it may well be that he does not with his kids growing older, he does not have the motivation to be a full-time golfer anymore. And it's also very possible, Shane, that he just simply, when he took that green jacket for the fifth time, a part of him said, you know what, I do not have anything left to prove. I have been as low as this game and life can take you, and I'm back where I wanted to be. And I remember doing an interview many years ago with Ian Woosnam, and Woosnam said he could always remember when his career kind of ended 
as he put it, because, and it was the day after he'd won the Masters in 1991 because he had achieved the world number one ranking the week before and he'd won the Augusta National and he said the only two objectives he had in life were to be world number one, win a major and that he climbed his mountain and he just slid down the other side of it. And it's very possible that Tiger does not feel the motivation having proved himself again that kind of famously motivated him for most of his career. Yeah, I mean the, the sheet, the, the Jack Nicholas sheet isn't pinned to his wall anymore. I mean, he, like you said, he 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 checks something off the box that I think a lot of us, I, I'm I'm at the forefront of this, never thought we'd even see ever again. So I mean, that being that, and and again, you know, you're you're done, and maybe he looks at the schedule and says, I've got St Andrews coming up, I've got this place, I've got that place, maybe I'll have a chance to win there. But hey, I, I did something that shocked the sports world, and that will be uh, that will be a nice thing to hang my career on. I wanted to get into somebody that is obviously not in that place mentally, Brooks Kepka. How important is it, and, and you can explain to people a little bit more about this, but how important will it be for him this week to have Ricky Elliott on the bag? Well, it would be a great sign if Ricky doesn't show up for work next week. So Ricky told me earlier this year if he wins the Open with Brooks in his hometown of Fort Rush that Ricky's going to party until Christmas. <laughs> so Brooks may not have him at the WGC event in, in Memphis next week. And, you know, Ricky, Ricky's a, he is the, the king here right now. I mean, even Brooks pointed out today that he's hearing many more calls for Ricky walking around the golf course than he is for himself. But maybe he can use that as one of his famous kind of motivational things because he thinks he's being disrespected. <laughs> uh, but I mean, Ricky Elliott was a hell of a player here. Ricky shot 65 on this golf course himself. Uh, but it's also an interesting little dynamic if we're placing a lot of value on what experience of Port Rush and knowledge of Port Rush Bagman has. Well, look at Rory's because Harry Diamond was also a very competitive amateur player here and in the North of Ireland Championship major amateur event that Rory shot his 61 in. At one point, Harry Diamond was the 36-hole medalist, qualifying medalist for it as well, with nine under par here. He shot a 65 at Port Rush himself in competition and lost in the final of that tournament on another year. So Harry knows his golf course every bit as well as Rory and Ricky Elliott do. So there's definitely this little cadre of Irish caddies here who everyone... I guess figures this will test what is the value of a caddy. Can he push a player over the line if they can put themselves in there? And of course, the two players involved would have to be considered probably the two favorites for the week. Just want to take a quick break to let you know that hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash clubhouse. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. And ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. One day. That's wild. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash clubhouse. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash clubhouse. ZipRecruiter.com slash clubhouse. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, back to Eamon. Yeah, I mean, you've talked a little bit about the, the crowds and the excitement around this event. Is this, I know it's expected to be, but do you feel like this will be one of the most well-attended uh, Open Champions we've seen in, in recent memory? It will be the uh, best attended because it's the first time the RNA have ever put a cap on the number of spectators and part of that is what the, the course can accommodate but it's also the, the public interest level I mean, the, the people talk about how it was G-Mac and Rory and Darren Clark winning majors 
that pushed the RNA here. I think a more decisive factor was the 2012 Irish Open, which was held at Royal Court Rush for the first time. And it was a, a, just a monster success, both in a corporate sense and as a fan engagement. There were more than 200,000 people showed up for the tournament. And that's what we have here this year. Normally, it was always one of the great charms of the Open Championship that you could show up at the gate on the day and buy your ticket and go in and watch the best players in the world. You didn't. It wasn't a trophy hunter ticket the way, say, the Masters is a trophy hunter ticket where you find a lot of people there, frankly, don't know that much about golf watching it. You never got that at the Open. And this year, they've actually put a cap on that because they know that they simply could not accommodate what the actual crowds would be if, if they had unfettered access. Well, I mean, I want to ask you, you've talked a little bit about growing up in the area and, and this, you know, obviously being a big week. Just personally, I mean, what's it like arriving at an Open Championship, Media Center, your name, you know, at, at, your, at your workstation? What's it been like for you this week to see this kind of reality hit, I mean, after all the years and years of, of covering the game and, and this being kind of, I'm sure, a moment that you've had circled on your personal calendar for years and years. Yeah, I never actually would have believed that an Open at, at Port Rush was, was possible, given the circumstances that so many of us were, were growing up in at that time. I mean, this was really a, a kind of a place apart. It was a dysfunctional field state for so long and the public perception of it was so much worse than even what the reality actually was so i never actually believed that it would happen until it was actually announced and you know it's it's been a very interesting experiment to watch it happen because this is still a, a pretty divided society but the open exists outside of these kind of domestic squabbles that that define northern irish life and it's amazing how much public support there actually is for this tournament. And in the way that reflects golf, because golf in this country has always been administered under the Golfing Union of Ireland without any regard to the border because the Golfing Union of Ireland predates the Irish border by 30 years. So golf has always been one of those kind of little areas where it's of relative calm, an island of sanity in, in Northern Ireland for so many years. And it's kind of, it's born fruit here. There's a reason, I think, why the first sporting event of this stature to come here when the gun smoke clears is a golf tournament because we've always had the the courses that are capable of hosting it. There's always been the interest of fans that would actually support it. It just had simply needed the you know, the gun smoke to clear and it's finally cleared, which is, you know, it's welcome in many ways outside of, of a golf tournament for sure. But it, it's a very significant day for a lot of people in this country who've put a lot of work into it. There is this little band of kind of tourist industry lickspittles on social media who insist that any conversation at all about what happened in, in this country for 50 years or even the divisions that exist now is somehow undermining the Open, which is nonsense. This tournament would be a success. One doesn't need to pretend that Northern Ireland is something other than what it is or has been it will not affect the tournament. The tournament is going to be a triumph, I think. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I think uh, at least, you know, not being there, you know, being kind of, you know, stateside and, and reading and, and seeing the, the, the quotes from some of these players. I mean, it, it definitely feels bigger than certain opens have felt over the last few years. I think people are really excited. I think people are excited about getting a chance to see this golf course in high def, you know, for however many hours, you know, Golf Channel NBC is going to run it because it is a it is a lengthy 
lengthy week. My last question for you, will you talk me out of Matt Wallace, the 2019 Open champion? Because uh, that is, uh, that's, I think that's who I'm going to pick. Is that a, is that a, am I, am I, am I close here? Uh, no, I refuse to go along with that one, Shane, because anyone who <laughs> is willing to invest so much energy in berating his caddy on live TV to the extent that Matt Wallace is doesn't even deserve the courtesy wow. of your pick. Wow. So I'm going to say, no, he is too tightly worn. You know how Lynx golf goes. It, it really is a test of attitude as much as what you do on the golf course. That's why highly strung people tend not to do well. Your Obsevi was the obvious exception in Lynx golf, but it's, it's a Scotsman's game. It's a dour, stoic kind of game where Tom Watson's triumph here, not Bubba Watson's. So a guy like Matt Wallace, who seems so tightly wound and highly strung and volatile, he just, I, I don't think he's going to be able to keep himself in check enough to do it on this scale, under this pressure. And until he actually starts to act like a grown up, I won't support you in picking him as your choice. Okay, I, I that's I like. I mean, that was that was maybe the best <laughs> your best line of the day right there. No, like Tom Watson, not Bubba Watson, is unbelievable. If there's there a place for people that are possibly listening to this that are headed to the Open that have never been that have never been to Northern Ireland, is there one thing you, a local with a very very high IQ? would say, you've got to do this, you've got to eat this, you've got to drink this. Is there one thing you would point them to as kind of a must-do in the area? Well, I wouldn't necessarily recommend Northern Ireland for its culinary activity, especially <laughs> not in Port Rush, because as, as I pointed out in that Golf Week story yesterday, this is like all of the seaside towns in Britain that host the Open right. as well. If you're looking for dinner on porcelain, you've got a problem. If you're looking for it in paper, <laughs> it's great. But, uh, you know, it, this is just a... It's an astonishingly beautiful uh, part of the world, as, as troubled and misbegotten as it has been for all of these 50 years. And I think anyone who comes here for the Open Championship is going to find a warm welcome. There's there's a ton of great golf courses. Belfast itself, even the the kind of more beleaguered history of Belfast is fascinating. And there are tours around that. And of course, everyone's marketing the Game of Thrones uh, filming that happened here for so many years. It's, there's a lot to do in Belfast, but I would actually just say, you know, do what you would do anywhere else. It's a great little corner of the world and the history that it has, has shown over the last, you know, 20 years in particular shows that it is not what it once was. It's not perfect. It's an imperfect piece. But, you know, we treat visitors as entertainment over here. We only fight with each other. That's what you said in the piece. You said if Ricky Fowler wears all orange, if your neighbor did that, it might be a fight. But you said here it'll just be people pointing and laughing. Pretty much, yeah. It's a, there's a very bleak sense of humor that exists in Northern Ireland. And, you know, David Verdi's the, the prime example of it. And Because, you know, if you don't laugh, you'd cry at some point over here over the years. But I think more people are laughing now for sure. Well, Eamon, I appreciate the time. Is there? A, do you have a schedule for the week yourself? Days you're going to be on Golf Channel, uh, pieces you're going to post out on Golf Week? I uh, will be writing every day at Golf Week, and for the hardy souls among you, I will be on Golf Channel at midnight until 1.30 a.m. on Thursday. I will be there with Damon Hack on Morning Drive until the first shot is hit by Darren Clark at 6.35 a.m. local time. So I've done some of my best work at that time, 
in in the past, but I was never sober for it. But I will be for this time. The, the twelve to one thirty slot. I've had that. T- I've had that TV time before, and uh, and it's always you. You always think to yourself, I can probably get away with this line. Hopefully, the execs aren't watching this one. Amen. I always appreciate it, man. I, I thank you for jumping on. I know it's going to be a fun week. We're excited to watch it over here, and uh, good luck to all you guys and all your colleagues for uh, for what we can only expect to be a great championship. Thanks, Shane. Enjoyed it. A big thanks to Eamon for jumping on. I know he's obviously a very, very busy man as he gets set for this Open Championship there at Royal Port Rush. And before we go, let's get into it. Max Homa, of course, PJ Tour player, PJ Tour winner this year. A pal of mine, one of the better guys in all of golf, uh, was kind enough to jump on the phone and chat a little bit about last week and the whole U.S. Amateur qualifying process, caddying out there, the good, the bad, and the ugly of my golf game. And I think you'll enjoy it. He's always, always very, very entertaining. Here we go. This is Max. And a special uh, bonus guest here. It is Max Homa, a man that is having an unbelievable 2019, including a a win on the PGA Tour. And now, I would say, on on your Wikipedia page, at least on on the first paragraph, you got a chance to caddy for me in a U.S. Amateur qualifier and uh, you only now you only worked the, half the event, so let's not get too excited. But yeah, you were out there uh, huffing it in the heat here in Arizona. Yeah, I mean, hey, uh, I'm I'm a real man of the people, uh, despite all of my just massive accolades these days. Um, I want to preface that it was not my fault. I didn't caddy both rounds. I I was told by by my boss that it was only one one day, so <laughs> to be I was fair not able now, to plan accordingly. To, to, to be fair. <laughs> I also didn't realize it was two days, and we aren't the only people that ran into this. I know Chris Solomon, no laying up, also ran into the same issue, and he had to actually cancel his second round because he had a trip coming up. None of us are good at reading any rule sheet or or any planning. Mind you, I, I will say one of the most impressive things you did, besides the fact that you were actually an unbelievable caddy, let me just tell you that, is <laughs> Thank you. anytime Thank you. we ran into any issue, you were into the rules sheet. It's a one pager. You were flipping that thing back and forth. You know exactly where to go. I felt like I was right back in junior golf, where um, you know we we had to actually play two balls at one point. I hadn't done that in a long time. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember you know those those yards um, or those pin sheets double as a as a as a rules book. Um, so I just felt like I just kind of got a, a whiff of, you know, high school golf all over again, uh, dove right back on in. And well, actually it helped, I think like three times. So we, we, we um, used glad, it, glad they uh, kept that system. Yeah. We used it a few times. And then in the second round, uh, and fortunately when you weren't around, we actually had to pull it out a couple more times. Not for me, mind you, it was for one of the people we were playing oh, with, but it was, it was, uh, it was, again, we were flipping it back and forth. I'm not sure I've ever gone through a rule sheet that much. Now I want to ask you first, how many times have you caddied in the last, you know, five, ten years? Because obviously most of the time when you're when you're around a golf course, you're focusing on kind of doing this thing for a living. Yeah, yeah, I am focused on doing this for a living. Um, but, yeah, my side did caddying uh, probably in the last five, ten years. Done it, I mean, maybe at the most a handful of times. A lot of them, I've done a, qualifier, a different type of qualifier uh, similar to what you did where it's a little more serious. I've done the, the fun member guest uh caddying but i grew up caddying at lakeside country club so that's where that's where my super expertise comes comes through real serious stuff over there with all the celebrities um but yeah i actually really enjoy caddying uh and it was it was really fun uh it's fun uh you know we were talking about how amateur golf so cool Uh, it's cool to do the u.s amateur qualifier uh 
because it's obviously a little bit more of the, the love of the game. There's no money. There's no anything like that. And I thought, you know, we did all right. You played great. We got screwed by one ruling, but that's all right. <laughs> the ruling in question was there were sprinklers about a yard off the off the putting surface. And what and you, you kept calling it the two-by-two two rule, right? Isn't that what the, the official yeah. professionals call it? <laughs> I don't know. Sure, we'll go with that. Well, yeah. you kept, you know, you kept snapping your finger, yelling "slugger," and I didn't know what was going on. I was confused by. What, <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing y'all do on tour. You just kept yelling it into the ether, and I was like, "Is somebody going to pull up in a cart? What is happening here?" Well, well, we remind them the guy that I we could have, you know, called "slugger." Uh, he, the rules official sitting about three hundred yards away from us. Uh, I think <laughs> just either, drove away. Either didn't see us or actively drove away from us because I was yelling at him to come over and he just kind of hightailed it on out of there. He went he went the opposite way on the other hole away from <laughs> us actually needing a rolling. So yeah, we had to play two balls and you were there. You have a very positive approach to Caddy and and I'm assuming, you know, I, I know you at this point, a fairly a positive approach to life. The way you speak, uh, you know, on the golf course, I mean, I hit a bad iron shot on a par four off the tee. It hit a tree and drops right down, and the first thing you said was, you know, that's perfect, no issues. Is that something you get from your caddy and guys you've had loop for you over the years? Do you kind of, like, almost absorb that that type of speak because they do that for you? Absolutely. Uh, you, you, I think the beauty of getting uh, caddy for, for my own personal gain is that you realize the importance of the – kind of positive talk and, and, and how mental the game is because, um, you know, we had a few instances where, you know, I could hear how you were saying something and you're kind of leaning towards almost like talking yourself into kind of a negative without being directly negative. So on shots like that, you know, I'll, I'll hit it. I always joke with my caddy, Joe, because <laughs> he, he is ultra positive, um, where I'll hit it short sided and be dead in a bunker and he'll find the one positive out of it. And he'll say, no, it's fine. We're chipping back into the wind. And it's just like, he means it. And it's, it's true. You know, obviously it's easier to spin it into the wind, but we're still in the worst spot you could have been in. Um, so he does it. Yeah. And uh, most caddies do. I think the best caddies are the, the ones who are the most concise at that and the best at it, um, at being positive and reminding you that it's all right. I mean, you hit one bad shot on a, on a, you know, on a par four and, uh, you know, ball didn't go out of bounds, ball didn't go in the water. I mean, we can we can work from there. Um, but yeah, I, I guess you just kind of get used to it. If you if you keep if you keep your mindset on the next shot and kind of the the benefits of hitting a great shot coming up instead of like what did I just do? I think that's where kind of kind of you can start to control control your emotions and and continue to hit good golf shots because there's no reason that you know one bad two iron all of a sudden should lead to uh, you know, then another bad swing and then another bad swing. So um, in general, I think that's kind of a, a major key to at least maximizing potential at the very least. Were you pretty nervous about how many selfies and autographs you were going to have to sign while also focusing in on the job at hand? Uh, no, because I know that you're, you're considerably more famous. Oh, and uh, so if anyone more, walked over and asked for a selfie, yes. you, you would just jump in and grab the phone and be like, sure, <laughs> sure, kid, I'll do it. <laughs> so I felt, like, I felt like I was in a pretty good spot. <laughs> it was, it was interesting. You know, the first hole we had, we played with, we played in threesomes and the first hole, one of the guys we played with would have been the last guy I think I would have picked that would have mentioned. I saw, I saw the banter on Twitter. He was, he was right in there. He jumped I right in. A Nokia phone, <laughs> and uh, I, didn't, I had no idea he knew what Twitter was. And he was the first person to say anything. The young kid had no idea, 
uh, what was going on. He was very focused on his round. Um, yeah. But man, what a group! The older guy, uh, Brant Job. I mean, that took me 14 holes to figure out who he reminded me of, but it sunk in. I'm not sure if he took it as a compliment that I thought in my head, but all I, to, I, all, I know know. Is that, all I know is the hole you said. You you pull your phone out, which I'm sure has to be in some sort of uh, rules book you know to do as a caddy in a USGA event, but it's all right. You pulled your phone out because you go, this guy's a UCLA golfer. He's got this tempo. He even dresses like him. He even dresses like him. We're walking down the fair. We go, Brant Job, man. It's Brant Job. And he, he birdied the next hole when we told him he was Brant Job yeah. White. Yeah, see, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to help him too. Uh, it was a little bit of a kind of backwards way to do it, but I figured I could give him a bit of a spark. Uh, the whole group kind of needed it. Uh, you were easily – easily taken down the group so i felt like some some of the other guys needed a bit of a boost of confidence i couldn't really think of who the other kid reminded me of but that one brand <laughs> job i've never seen somebody more alike to a to another golfer uh than those two yeah so so when i was a kid my mom tells this kind of funny story of we were in this airport in new york and i was like five or six and i went up and tugged on this guy's shirt and I go, are you Boomer Esiason? And the kid, the guy turned around and goes, how, wow. how the hell does this kid know who Boomer Esiason is? <laughs> I wonder if this is the one time in the history of the world that somebody's gone up to somebody and said, your doppelganger is Brant Job. <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty amazed that you knew who Boomer Sison was. I don't think I could do that right now. Um, good. That's that's impressive. No wonder you're in you're in the biz now. But Ooh, yeah, I don't think that that guy's gotten Brand Joe. I don't think anyone's gotten Brand Joe before. I don't even know if Brand Joe's gotten Brand Joe before. But um, it was a great compliment. I, I played golf with Brant one time. He's an awesome player. I thought it was a pretty big compliment. It was it was a nice one. So uh, overall, I just want your overall. You know, from 5,000 feet, look at the day and caddying in general, and maybe you can assess my golf game, the goods, the bads, and the uglies, just for the listeners out there uh, as as you spent, again, you spent four and a half hours in 105, 110 degree heat. <laughs> well, I mean, I got a free burrito after, so it was very, very much worth it. Free burrito and um, taco, thank yeah, you. It was, it was a number seven, and so oh, you got and two. Oh, you I got forgot, two yeah, the yeah. number seven was... Well, um, uh, I'll start with your golf game. Your golf game is also, I mean, we've played together multiple times. Um, you hit the ball so well. Uh, you know, I know I joked about it on Twitter. I mean, you hit it so far, it's absurd. You also have those freaking Titleist, uh, shout out Titleist, those Titleist uh, uh, TMB irons that go 700 miles, <laughs> which I don't think you need. But um, I think that's, again, uh, what I call you a meathead. That's your meathead in you. You want to hit it farther than everybody. But uh, you sure hit it far, and it's awesome. You drive it really well. Um, you putted awesome, awesome the day the day we played. Obviously, the greens weren't very good. Uh, but, yeah, it's just the little things. You know, I think that's the interesting part that separates people who do this for a living and who can, you know, afford to do it every day. And then someone, obviously, like you and, like, everybody at the USA who has USA or qualifier who has a, 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 you know, a regular job, uh, you just don't have as much time to practice the little things. The little things are – you know, kind of what separate a even par to a four under. You know, you make a couple more putts, you hit a couple wedges close, and you hit a couple good pitches. Uh, th that's all that really holds you back. It would have been interesting. Um, I wish I could have seen the second day. I know you didn't play as well, so that would have been a little bit more interesting because when when I caddy for you, you hit it you hit it really well, and I didn't feel like we were ever really stressing. Um, but in general, uh, like I said, caddying is a a weird kind of passion of mine. I, I really enjoy it. Um, I like, I like getting on the other side of the bag and, and like I said, kind of seeing, 
the inner workings of a round of golf instead of just when you've got the the clubs in your hand you know you're you're much more focused on outcome and not so focused on process and getting kind of back into the process is always interesting for me because I think it helps me personally. And I just enjoy it. It it was fun. Um, You can see when, you know, people are getting upset in the group, you can see how little value that has in the uh, grand scheme of the round. Um, And like I said, the U S amateur is obviously the biggest amateur golf tournament in the, in the world. And uh, the fun part about it is, you know, I remember, doing it when I was a a kid and I remember just the life and death feel of (laughs) having to get through or having to, you know, make it to match play or to win. And now you sit back and I think people uh, on a couple people on social media took it the wrong way. I think a lot of people took it the right way. The actual life circumstances that come from not playing well in the USAM uh, are very slight compared to people with real jobs and, you know, real lives, but it's amazing how golf can just make you, really treasure and want something so bad, even just, you know, playing in your first USAM. I remember qualifying for my first one and it was one of the more exciting drives I've ever had uh, after that going home. Um, and it's just, you know, it's for pride. It's for the love of the game and the joy. It was really cool to be able to be a part of it and see that again. I hadn't seen it in obviously quite a few years. Yeah. Well, something I will take away just from you being on the bag and it was, we did it. I think the first time this happened was the fourth holes of a par five and I hit it right off the tee. Out of bounds was left, and I and you even wrote the, wrote this on Twitter. You said I I kept talking right. It was one of those things where you said I'm being negative without knowing it. I was like, right's good here, right's good here, and you're like, this is going right, and it went right. But uh, you you told me you walked me through the shot, and I'd never had a caddy do this. I'd never heard this before. Basically, your mentality, and I think it's it's you and your caddy's mentality, is you eliminate the big number, you eliminate bad. And then you you kind of walk through the shot from there. And so there was a tree, you know, probably 20, 30 yards in front of me that if I got super cute and greedy, I could hit the tree and it might drop straight down. And now all of a sudden, you've got to scramble to make a five. And once you eliminate that, then you walk through the shot. And you did that a few times throughout the day. And I thought it was so interesting. And it's something that I will use going forward is you basically, when you're maybe in trouble or you're maybe not in the best of spots, you eliminate the big, big miss and then you go <laughs> from there, you go to hitting golf shots and you, yeah, you did that a few times. And I, and I just thought it was such a great way to look at maybe not being in the best spot. And I, and I, I I'm assuming that's something that you kind of walk through throughout your game when you don't hit one in the fairway or hit one right where you want it. Absolutely. Um, I think that's the most interesting part about like, like we were just talking about like uh, professional golf versus you know, people who can't do this every single day. Um, I think that it's not even just when you're in trouble. It's just most useful when you're in trouble. But essentially, if, I, if we were on the driving range and I told you, hey, Shane, hit, a, hit me a five-yard draw uh, that finishes at that pin. You get up there, you swing, you hit it, whatever. It, it's, you know, that, that's a shot you practice, I'm sure, when you hit balls on the range like anyone would. Well, when we get onto the golf course and now there's trouble, so let's say there's water right, the pin's on the right by the water, blah, 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 all these things. And I say, hey, Shane, I want a five-yard draw it's a lot easier for you to decommit to doing that because obviously if you overdraw it, it goes in the water, all these things. So we, before you hit a golf shot, we, we decide we're going to aim it instead of finishing on the pin, we're going to finish it, let's say 15 feet left of the pin somewhere safer. Um, once we've done that and now we have a new target, we can't then think, okay, but let's also make sure we keep this left. Like we all already thought that, like that's right. what we did. That, that's, that's, that's why we're aiming 10 feet left. So at some point you're going to have to be able to stand up there. And that was my whole point with the drive. 
you know, Shane gets up there on this hole. I had never been there. So Shane gets up on the hole and you're hitting this shot that you keep telling me right's good. And I know exactly what you mean. This is what's so interesting for me because I've done this a million times. I probably will do it, you know, in my next tournament. But I know that I can't be left. Left is dead. Left is dead. Left is dead. And so you keep talking yourself into being right, right, right. But at no point did I think you were actually allowing yourself to hit the fairway. Like you never you, – you weren't really picking a spot to hit the fairway. We already moved our line to the right edge of the fairway, which is good. But now we got to hit a shot at that fair, at the right edge of that fairway. And that's the most interesting thing part about – most interesting part about golf is that, I mean, you could hit it out of bounds. Like, Life goes on. If you hit it, I always tell myself this. If I hit out of bounds, I wasn't meant to play that good today, you know? So, right. like, like, you know, I got to get I gotta get better at that tee shot. Like, that's what that tells me. Instead of just being like, I'm going to hang on for dear life and make sure this thing doesn't go left. Like, that doesn't mean no good. I want to get up there, make the best swing I can, and hit it down the right side of the fairway. And I just felt like that was, you know, obviously you don't, like, again, you're not as sharp. You don't get to practice and play like we do. But at the same time, it's like you didn't mentally allow yourself to make a great drive, uh, uh, make a great swing on that drive. You were going to hit that thing right, which was smart. It's safe. Like you, you played. You know, you had good course management there. We got up there. We ended up having to look at birdie better than being left. But we already set that up to not be left right. by aiming so far to the right. Yeah, you, you you said I think you said before I hit it. You said you know you you can't hit this fairway or something. It was like you know they're, they're, it's, yeah. we're still not. I think you I said remember, we're still trying remember to remember we're trying to hit this fairway. Right, right. <laughs> we're trying to hit this fairway. You're sitting there going, oh, "This is going to be right." Um, so, uh, great caddy. I, I will probably hire you again at some point uh, in in the coming years Please if you do. don't get too famous and uh, and win too many big events. Speaking of big events. I know you were on the alternate list to get into the open. Obviously, it didn't work out for you. But you're going to – I loved your, your, your mentality on this. You didn't play John Deere, and, and obviously you're not going to be at Rural Port Rush, but you've got a big event next week. So you're going to get to go into that very, very fresh. I'm assuming as fresh as you've probably been all season long, so you'll get to kind of hit the ground running there. I do want to ask Max Homa, 2019 PGA Tour winner and, and caddy, what is – who is your pick at the Open Championship since really when people read the – title of this podcast it is going to be an open championship podcast who do you think wins on sunday rory and a humongous part of this is this hype video i saw from nike yesterday. oh my goodness the about one about when he 61? shot 61 when he was a kid i am i am uh there, did you see that video the yeah. nike video it was unbelievable yeah so so if you've seen it and you don't pick rory i i don't you're just a tougher <laughs> person than me because i watched that and i just i couldn't even imagine how many he's gonna win by uh if he was doing that when he was 16, uh, God only knows what he's going to shoot this week. So I'm very, I'm very much in on Rory winning. I think it'd be great for the game. It would be really cool for him to win in Ireland. Um, but uh, I guess we'll see. But that video really, really swayed me. <laughs> you like head to the range after you're just pounding golf balls yeah, in the heat. Like, oh God! I, I was, I just kept thinking about what I was shooting when I was. <laughs> oh, 61. Par 61. I still wasn't shooting 61. I think. <laughs> Well, Max, I appreciate you taking some time. That is a Wells Fargo champion this year. Uh, the only man that's ever made a hole-in-one in a Walker Cup in the history of the Walker Cup. The course record at Los Angeles Country Club. But really, uh, when things end for you, I think 2019 caddy at Wigwam Gold is going to be right there. It's going to be right there with those things. It needs to start leading off this, leading off the charge of the, of the well, intro. When you I think get, it needs when you to get, start caddy yeah, when you, at Wigwam. When you get interviewed, way down. like when, when Amanda interviews you next time or, you know, when, when you do a golf channel hit, I would like you just to correct them, if you don't mind, when you start. You know, <laughs> great, I, I appreciate would. it. It's a big moment for me to win my first WGC. But if you could put on the, on the, on the graphic – 
you know, caddy occasionally in parentheses. Uh, that would see that would be awesome. That would be like uh, like hopefully uh, I get invited back to Fax and CVS Charity wow. Classic, and nice. I know that he would he would be the first to to put that in the brochure of of you know my accomplishments is caddy first. PJ Tour player second, and I'm okay with that because it was a it was a serious honor to caddy for such a celebrity as yourself. Yeah, you're such a humble guy there, caddy first, player second. Also, I love how you weaseled <laughs> in that you want to play in the CVS again. You t- talked about it for about six of the 18 holes. Man, I'd love to get back into that <laughs> CVS field with facts. Hey, I'm working year, my angle. Which is, I'm going to make Brad listen to this this week at the Junior Am. Be like, did you hear what Max said? He said it on the podcast. That's really nice of him. <laughs> I'll um, give a shout out a week. Yeah, <laughs> Max. I do want to just say, and one one final thing: when you prepare for a big event, do you tend to go to Italian restaurants with your caddy and have like three or four Coronas before, like we did? Is that would you say that was good prep going into the event or not? Uh, I kind of get it more on the caddy side now because it was awesome for me. <laughs> it was super fun. I get, you know, I obviously I get the, the player side as well. It might not be the smartest, um, uh, you know, kind of preparation, but we, we loosened up. We had some fun. I, I We didn't go full Romeo and Tin Cup, so we were good there. Uh, I think it was great. I think maybe I'll start to implement it a little bit more. Uh, I like it. You know, we had a blast, a uh, few few beers. It was, it was a good kind of good start to the – to the tournament yeah and uh and and i will say we did birdie the first hole on on, on the first of the 36 holes <laughs> that's a really good on point. So, four so, iron from 257 yards <laughs> that's when you that's when you were like sure hit it max i appreciate it uh, yeah, have, have a good week off i guess i'm sure you're gonna are you gonna get up and watch it like will you get up and will you get up early and watch open coverage i've decided if my dog uh has to go out and it's that time i'll i'll stay up if not I'm going to put it in her hands. Um, I, I used to when I was a kid. I used to have a whole thing. But one is early. I mean, four is okay. One is yeah. one is aggressive. You, so. you can watch it going uh, to bed. I would I mean, like that's, to. That's what's crazy about West Coast. I could. That's yeah, going point. to bed like 10 p.m. it comes on. Uh, well, we'll catch up with you soon down the road. Good luck the rest of the year. And, again, I appreciate the help uh, trying to get into the U.S. Amateur. I guess I'll just have to go broadcast it. <laughs> Next year, man. We'll do it. <clears throat> It looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. A big thanks to Eamon Lynch and Max Homa for jumping on this week. Hope you guys enjoy the Open Championship. And I just wanted to let you know quickly that it's not the only event out on TV this week. The U.S. Junior Amateur, we are broadcasting on FS1. It's 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern starting on Friday. We do Friday and Saturday, 2 to 4 Eastern on FS1 from the Inverness Club in Toledo, Ohio. And so if you don't get your fill by watching the Open Championship, click that on or DVR it. It's a couple hours. You'll see the best of the match play, and you'll get to watch some great young players. And one thing that we've learned, you know, Brad Faxon and I talked about this a decent amount, is this is literally the next generation of great players. This isn't 10 years from now. This is two or three years from now. We had Matt Wolf in this championship a couple years ago, and look what he's doing already on the PGA Tour. So 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern, FS1, U.S. Junior Am. That is on Friday and Saturday. Enjoy the week. Enjoy the early uh, wake-up calls with the Open Championship, and we'll check back next week.